everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Three, two, one. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Emma Williams with us. Welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. So, Emma, you've done a lot of work on uh, civil commitment and prison policy. Um, And I wanted to kind of know your background and how you got into this uh, particular topic. Yeah, absolutely. So my first touch with this work was that I worked in sexual violence prevention. Um, I was working for a domestic violence agency called the Northwest Network of BTLG Survivors of Abuse. And there I I got really interested in the way that a lot of our clients were facing criminalization by the criminal legal system when they were reaching out for help. Um, And so from there, I just, I became really interested in the way that social services um, and things that we maybe think of as helping systems like schools, counseling centers, um, hospitals, et cetera, oftentimes actually can lead to people becoming involved with the criminal legal system. And so for the past five or so years, I've been working on Uh, examining the intersection between the criminal punishment system and um, kind of neutral, supposedly neutral helping systems. And for those who don't know, what exactly is civil commitment? Yeah, so civil commitment is a kind of unique uh, practice that exists in 20 U.S. states. Um, and the Federal Bureau of Prisons. And civil commitment uh, started in the late 90s, um, early 2000s, um, as a response to a couple of very high profile instances of sexual abuse, particularly child sexual abuse. And it's a series of policies often called sexually violent persons or sexually violent predator laws um, that mean that after somebody has been detained by the criminal legal system, they can then be re-detained by the civil legal system to a treatment facility. And I use air quotes when I say treatment. Um, and what we find in Illinois, which is where I live and where the majority of my research focuses on, um, is that for a lot of people, this means that after serving a pretty lengthy prison sentence, they go on to serve um, an indefinite sentence in this treatment facility that's essentially like another prison where you don't have an outdate. And is this separate and above from like uh, sexual offender uh, registration status and things like that? Yeah, so folks who are civilly committed, um, if and when they're released, will be required to register. But this is before they even get to the registry phase because they haven't been released into the community. And 
how is this constitutional? Because it seems like if you're, you know, convicted of a crime and mm -hmm. you serve your time, then you get released. So right. why are you not getting released? I think a lot of people inside and a lot of folks who are concerned about this issue, like myself, ask the same question. Um, the way that the Supreme Court has rationalized it, which I believe was the Kansas versus Hendricks case, um, was that the the uh, our side, I guess, was trying to argue that this is double jeopardy, that you can't incarcerate somebody twice for the same crime. Um, but the argument is that this is not a trial um, about the original crime. You're not relitigating that. You can use evidence from that trial in this new trial that is about whether or not somebody meets the criteria laid out under the Sexually Violent Persons Act in their state. So supposedly this is not about somebody's initial offense. This is actually about somebody's risk of causing another kind of harm in the future. So is some people, some advocates call it pre-crime preventative detention. Um, because the, if, if you've seen the movie, The Minority Report, it's a similar concept, this idea that we can incarcerate people for crimes that we believe they're statistically likely to commit. Um, and so supposedly it's constitutional because it's not about somebody's initial offense, it's about their risk of a future offense. Now, is this an evidence-based practice? That's an interesting question. I think it really depends who you would ask, I would argue that a lot of the evidence is really bogus. Um, I think that I think that therapy doesn't really work when people don't have confidentiality. And a lot of the evidence that's brought into people's um, hearings when they are being considered for release comes directly from, there's a, a therapist who then talks to, I believe their title is like a court evaluator and they're the intermediary party. And then they report things that uh, this person has sat in therapy to the court as a way of monitoring their progress. And so if you call that evidence, then sure. But I would say that anytime that somebody is doing a kind of treatment and that the, and the things that they say in that treatment um, are going to impact their life outcomes and whether or not they're indefinitely detained probably isn't going to be a super accurate read of where somebody is at. Um, and this also relies on risk, risk assessment tools. Um, particularly something called the static 99R, which is an evaluation that is used to assess somebody's supposed risk of reoffending. Um, it's a quiz that is based on finding from mostly unpublished research uh, that looks at large data sets and says, what are common traits amongst people who repeatedly cause sexual harm? And then it assesses people for those traits. And so I think that that's something that is kind of trendy right now is like evidence-based or smart on crime practices. I would say that you can't have somebody fill out a 10 question quiz and then predict their behavior for the rest of their life. So I wouldn't call that evidence, but I think that that's up for debate. And at least my understanding is that despite um, the, the common perception, the mm -hmm. recidivism rate for sex offenses really isn't that high. I believe it, it's either the lowest or one of the lowest um, if you measure by offense category, which is pretty remarkable considering that a lot of the uh, circumstances that people who have caused sexual harm are forced to live in after their incarceration, all of the limi limitations that are imposed on them by registry systems, um, make it pretty hard for people to succeed. So the fact that people succeed without reoffending anyways is, is I think pretty impressive. So, what do these hearings look like? Are people represented by attorneys? Is it 
done in front of a judge? Who makes the determination? Yeah, so I, I wish I had a little bit more information about that. I haven't personally seen one of these hearings, but yes, people do go in front of a judge. Initially, what happens is that um, at the end of somebody's sentence, they are flagged as a potential risk to the attorney general's office. And then if the attorney general takes interest, um, the state's attorneys, they will have this person evaluated for potentially uh, going into SVP treatment. Again, air quotes on that. Um, that usually happens within the last couple of weeks of somebody's sentence. We've heard a story from a family who had bought a new home because that was met all of the registry requirements because it's so hard to find a place where somebody with a sex offense can live um, because they thought their son was coming home in six weeks and then found out that he would be indefinitely detained in this new facility. Um, so they go through this battery of examinations with interviews with psychologists and uh, filling out the static 99R or having it filled out about them. Um, et cetera, and then all of that is used as evidence and then people are detained pre-trial. So their sentence in the Department of Corrections ends. they're transferred to uh, solitary confinement because it so, was so common that people would commit suicide after hearing that this was gonna be their future. So they started keeping them in just preventative suicide watch before they transfer them. They transfer them to this facility that's called Rushville. Um, and then after, once their court date comes up, they go in front of a judge again. Um, and, but they are detained pre-trial, just like in the criminal legal system. You referenced the minority report, but this is sounding more like Kafka. <laughs> I can see where you see the, the overlaps, yep. Um, because it doesn't seem like there's a way out of this for a lot of people. I think a lot of people feel that there is not a way out. Um, there are people inside who have refused treatment. So the treatment is technically voluntary. You can't get out without it. So I don't think that it's voluntary if somebody's choice is be detained for the rest of your life or do this. But I, supposedly the treatment is voluntary and there are people inside who refuse treatment because they feel that they go through this process that actually just makes it harder for them to get out because they are potentially... Uh, saying things in therapy in a space where they want help that are then seen as recriminalizing them. And so there are people inside who I think feel strongly that there is not a pathway out and, and have stopped investing in the supposed pathway that's available to them because of that. Do you feel like there's sufficient oversight over this process? I mean, there is not oversight. even aware of this. Yeah, yeah. And you're not alone in that. I think a lot of people who are strong advocates around criminal legal system issues have no idea that this practice exists. I know a lot of attorneys who are very experienced have been working in the Illinois area for decades and have never heard of this because it's a very shadowy practice, um, which I think speaks to the lack of oversight. So one part of this is that it is the this facility is under the Department of Human Services, not the Department of Corrections. So there's less attention on detention in the department when people look at the Department of Human Services because they provide so many other things that are not detention as opposed to that being the purpose of the Department of Correction. Um, but there is no external oversight. So there is a prison watchdog organization in Illinois, the John Howard Association, that goes in and does independent monitoring of prisons and they have not been able to get into Rushville despite I think repeated efforts too. So as far as we're aware, the, the group of researchers that I worked with to do this survey of people inside and the results that we published is the only external oversight the facility has ever been subjected to. And I'm looking at the map on uh, the prison policy 
um.org and I noticed um, you mentioned you're in Illinois and there's like 500 people there. I'm in California and there's almost a thousand people mm -hmm. uh, in California. So it's not, I mean, it's interesting because it's not a huge number, but it is a huge number. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the current estimates are that there are 6,000 people um, across the country. There are some advocates who believe that that is an underestimate and say that it's more like 10,000. I'll give the example that in Illinois, um, I believe that at the time that this data was collected, there were 525 people in Rushville. But Illinois is unique in that we actually have two kinds of these laws. We have the Sexually Violent Persons Act, and then we have the Sexually Dangerous Persons Act. And the Sexually Dangerous Persons Act um, has people still confined in the Department of Corrections, but they're also in a civil commitment program simultaneously. And that number is not reflected in this 525. I don't think that the group that's been collecting this data is aware that that facility exists. So I think that there is a lot of undercounting. Um, and even if it is, you know, 6,000 or 10,000, you know, maybe doesn't feel like that big of a number across the U.S. But my personal sentiment is that I think that the way that the um, criminal legal system reform landscape is moving right now is that kinds of preventative detention, things that are supposedly evidence-based, uh, things that are supposedly treatment instead of incarceration are becoming increasingly popular. Um, and so I think that this is just one example of ways that we see people be detained uh, supposedly to heal them. Um, and I think that that's going to be a growing trend. And so I think that even if this is a small number, it's something that we should be paying attention to, because I, I think this is just one of the first times of this sort of incarceration that we're going to see. So I'm, I'm really curious. So uh, drilling down a little bit here, um, what kinds of offenses were, were these people initially convicted of? And then mm -hmm. is it a single offense or did they commit multiple offenses? It really depends on the person. Um, there's not, to my knowledge, there's not any criteria that says it has to be multiple offenses. Um, the people who are locked up at, at Rushville Treatment Detention Facility have caused serious sexual harm. Um, and many of the people, though not all of them, it was serious sexual harm to children. Um, what we hear though, is that a lot of the people who were in there were convicted when they were very young. And so I think in a number of these instances, you know, it's, it's teenagers, with teenagers, which doesn't mean that the sexual harm didn't occur. It doesn't mean that there wasn't serious trauma or damage done there. Um, but I, th I think that it helps dispel the idea that this is necessarily just a, a facility that's all full of much older people who are preying on very young children. Yeah, and that that is a big difference because one of the things that I've seen just in sexual um, uh, you know, uh, offense registration um, that, you know, sometimes, you know, it's very serious crime. Sometimes it's relatively minor, you know, you're mm -hmm. talking like, you know, a 21-year-old having uh, sexual relations with a 17-year-old girlfriend and you're right. just like, wow, you have to register as a sex offender for life for that? I mean, wow. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I mean, I think it speaks almost also so much to uh, the way that identity and privilege play out in the system and that the people that we see get incarcerated for those age difference relationships when they're young are not necessarily going to be young white teenagers with family who have access to money and attorneys, you know. Right. And is it a single offense or is it multiple offenses? 
As far as I'm aware, there's no criteria that says that it has to be multiple offenses, but I, I think that it varies. I think that for some people it's multiple and so for some people it's a single offense. And, and what's the difference between a, a sexual violent and a sexually dangerous? That's offense? a good question. I am still a little bit unclear what the exact criteria is that differentiates them. I know that similar diagnostic tools are used. My understanding is that the Sexually Violent Persons Act um, is something that happens at the very end of somebody's sentence that they're not necessarily aware of throughout the duration of their incarceration, though I think that incarcerated people have been doing an increasing amount of organizing to make sure that other people inside know that this is a possibility um, and maybe can make some strategic choices about how they navigate uh, going through evaluations at the end of their sentence that could potentially help them avoid becoming civilly committed. Um, but the Sexually Dangerous Persons Act is, my understanding is that sometimes it's part of a plea deal that people take at the beginning of their sentence. Um, and so I know that there are a number of guys who were locked up 10 or 15 years ago who were told that uh, they could take this really long sentence or they could plead into the Sexually Dangerous Persons Program and then they could uh, would be out in, I forget the range that they gave them. I want to say it was like six to 10 years or something like that, which was shorter than the sentences that they were looking at. And so a number of people took that plea because it seemed like a good deal. And I think a lot of people feel that they do need treatment. I think that they're sometimes aware that the harm that they caused is serious and that um, it was in part informed by their own trauma. And so I think some people for a moment are excited about the prospect of being able to receive treatment. And then they realize that the treatment's totally bogus and that this is an indefinite sentence. Um, and I think a lot of people inside say that this is a life sentence and some people inside say that this is a death sentence because the conditions inside these facilities are so abysmal that people end up dying much earlier when they're there. And I'll ask you about that in a second, but I want to get at the, what the treatment looks like, because, you know, it'd be one thing, I think, um, if it were definite treatment and then also, you know, there are restorative based processes that, mm -hmm. that help people a lot with trauma informed syndrome and all sorts of other stuff. Um, and it doesn't sound like that's what's happening here. Not from what I'm hearing. I mean, I, my understanding is that treatment oftentimes starts with being asked to recount every moment of sexual deviance in your life from as early as you can remember to now. So that's a pretty heavy question, I think, to ask any person. And I think that even for people who cause sexual harm, I really don't mean to diminish the side of this that is experiencing the harm because that trauma is really serious. But I think often the experience of causing the harm is, is pretty traumatic too. Um, and so I think a lot of people, and a lot of people inside also experienced sexual harm themselves when they were young. So I think a lot of the treatment is about recounting moments of trauma. Um, and I don't, and then I think not being met with effective support to process all of the things that you're sharing. Um, it's very rare that people get one-on-one -on -one treatment. Oftentimes they get to meet with a psychiatrist for like 15 minutes every couple of weeks. Most of the treatment is done in group. I think a lot of people feel unsafe speaking freely and candidly in group um, because of all of the different interpersonal dynamics that are present within the facility. I mean, I, I don't know if this is your experience working with incarcerated or formerly incarcerated people, but a lot of the people I work with say it feels like high school again in terms of some of the interpersonal kind of drama that can come up. And so I think that really limits the efficacy of the therapy. And then the therapy is oftentimes administered by grad students who are finishing up residencies. And so these are people who are new to their career, who are still learning. Um, people are essentially being used as test subjects in that way. I think that people have described themselves as feeling like guinea pigs. And then as soon as somebody's uh, residency ends, they oftentimes leave because this is a very sensitive issue to work on. A lot of people don't wanna work around issues of sexual abuse or child sexual abuse. 
And a lot of people say, we've seen this on um, review boards like Indeed or Glassdoor, things like that. When people evaluate their experiences, a lot of people say they felt the facility was very unethical and they felt that the supervisors were incentivizing them to keep people in treatment longer. And so a lot of people, a lot of grad students want to get out of there as soon as possible, which is understandable, but it means that then the people who are detained there have to start treatment over with a new person. And when they start treatment over with a new person, that person reevaluates them. They re have to recount all of those traumatic incidences. And then they get to reassign them to the tier of treatment that they're on. And so people have to move through a graduated tier system to graduate up and out of the facility. It's very difficult to move through the tiers. And one of the reasons that it's difficult is because people are frequently put back on a lower tier when they're seen by a new evaluator, a new therapist. Yeah, and you know, my initial reaction was to actually chuckle a little bit because uh, you mentioned, you know, uh, coming up with every instance of sexual deviancy, and I, you know, I think every person would have a very long list. Yeah. Of, I mean, and I'm not even talking about the people in the facility. I'm just talking about people in general. Absolutely. That seems an absurdity. Yeah, well, and enforcing one standard definition of sexual deviance too. I mean, I don't really know how people are supposed to decide what they share because that's such a subjective definition. And I think that so much of this facility and, and so much of the logic that this uh, kind of practice relies on is, is pretty puritanical views of sex. There's a lot of homophobia in the facility. There's a lot of values around very traditional monogamy, things like that. And so... It, it seems like one of the problems is that you're you're pushing a huge amount of people into group treatment on sensitive subjects. But mm -hmm. I mean, is, is the concern just that they're not managing the treatment well, or are the actual conditions of the facility substandard? It's both. It's definitely both. The treatment is, is subpar and so are the conditions of the facility. The facility was initially um, a youth detention facility. So the beds and the rooms are physically too small for people. A very common cause of injury at this facility is people falling out of bunk beds in the middle of the night and getting injured. Um, a lot of people inside, well, it's kind of, I was going to say that a lot of people inside are disabled or become disabled while they're there. And that's true, but also technically in order to become incarcerated at a facility like this um, or detained at a facility like this, they have to be diagnosed with a mental abnormality. So by that standard, everyone there has a disability, but a lot of people report um, developing disabilities while they're inside because of substandard uh, access to medical care, no, no access to preventative care really. Um, the food inside is really abysmal. People talk a lot about developing diabetes over the course of their time there. Uh, very little access to fresh or healthy food. Um, and then a lot of people report violence inside the facility, both from staff and between residents. And specifically, there were a number of people who reported being placed in situations um, that would expose them to violence from other residents and, and having staff doing that knowingly as a, as a punitive action. Um. So what is your hope um, in terms of, I, I guess, the goal of your work, just bringing awareness to this? Uh, is it a lobbying goal? Is it a mm -hmm. reform goal? Is it an abolition goal? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, there, I have a lot of goals with this. This is work that I hope to be doing all my life, and I'm a pretty young person. I'm 25. I've been doing this for four and a half years, and I, so I've got a lot of time left to keep working on this, is my hope. 
Um, but I think that uh, abolition is, is a bottom line priority for me. I think that both abolition of these specific facilities and abolition of the carceral system more, uh, more broadly, but also specifically, I think abolishing the ideas that inform these facilities. So number one, real misunderstandings of how sexual harm works, not recognizing that it's pretty rare that people um, are, you know, the, the pathological serial rapists that you see in your true crime TV shows, that oftentimes these are people who are survivors of their own experiences of harm, who are caught up in cycles of violence, as opposed to just being perpetrators or just being victims. Um, so I think awareness around breaking down that binary and also breaking down the, the homophobia that's inherent in sending people to these facilities because somebody, uh, victim being of the same sex, uh, is a factor that considers them higher risk to reoffend. So the, the practice is necessarily homophobic. Those are things that I really hope to bring awareness to. And then I really hope that through, uh, through that process, bringing awareness to the idea that forced treatment isn't treatment, treatment has to be consensual and also addressing issues of non-consent with force and punitive responses just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't lead, bring about a world that is more consensual and filled with more choice and more freedom. So with hopefully uh, kind of breaking apart those ideas that I think will have the risk of potentially informing a lot of similar practices that are uh, going to be similarly dangerous. Um, and then also bringing about options for people to have really restorative solutions and, and transformations. A lot of people inside really are quick to acknowledge, I need treatment, I need help. Um, I've caused serious harm and I know that. And so I think people deserve that help. And I think that survivors deserve that help too. And again, there's not one or the other. Most people inside are both survivors and abusers, but making sure that everybody who is touched by sexual harm has access to real transformative and consensual healing. Yeah, and I think that's an important point that you just made um, because, um, and, and we talk about this a lot now, is, is there's a, a victim to um, perpetrator offender pipeline mm -hmm. where, where, you know, we, we have this notion that, you know, the world's made up of, oh, they're victims and then there are the criminals, right? Right. But, but the reality is that a lot of people that end up in the system started out as victims who had this yep. trauma that were never treated. And yep. then they go on to commit crimes themselves because mm -hmm. they've never healed. And so, um, and it also sounds like, and I think this is also very important that, that you acknowledge that, that there's a need for something, it's just not fixed. Yeah, I think that, I mean, healing is so important to me. As someone who's experienced sexual harm myself, I'm really sympathetic to the, the emotions that drive facilities like this to be created um, and to the experiences that, that lead people to cause serious harm. And so I, I really am a strong believer that people do need treatment and do need help, uh, but when they can consent to it and, and honestly ask for it. And also recognizing that a one-size-fits-all treatment model is not going to work for people. People need really different kinds of support. Um, and having a, a wide variety of options available to them is really crucial. And, and I think just to build on what you said, I think that's such a good point. And one story that I can think of that really illustrates this is that I talked with one person who has a, um, a possession of child pornography charge. And what she was saying to me about it was she was like, this looked like my first sexual experiences. These, these videos reminded me of my formative sexual experiences because she'd been sexually abused as a child. And that just really hit home for me where I was like, oh, yeah, of course, you have a really warped perception of sexuality because your introduction to sexuality was very warped. 
Um, so I just, I like to share that anecdote just because I think it helps dispel some, some myths. Yeah, I think, I think that's really important because people have this very black and white perception of these things and, and they're not. Um, yes, absolutely. And then I guess my final question is, you know, is there something I didn't ask that is really important for people to know? That's a great, that's a great one. Um, I think that one thing that I, we got into a little bit, but that I just always like to drive home even more if there's an opportunity to, is to just really ask people who are listening to think about what it means if we accept a world where risk assessment technologies can decide how people are detained. Um, and so again, that the piece about this being a homophobic practice, that people who have same-sex victims um, are people who are more likely to reoffend. I mean, this is this is a perfect example of times that bias are written into, you know, supposedly objective scientific tools. Um, and so I just, yeah, I think that there are people who take comfort in the idea that this is a supposedly evidence-based practice, that there's data that shows that these people are more likely to reoffend, but I personally would not like for people to predict my future behavior based on somebody else's future behavior, somebody in a data set who I don't know or have any connection to. Um, and I think that most people would say that for themselves as well. And so I just, yeah, like to drive home that I, I think it's important that we all think about um, when we have the opportunity to be voting on initiatives for smart on crime, predictive policing things, is that really smart in the way that I think that we want it to be? And I think not to negate anything that you said, but my biggest concern is the indefinite nature of this thing yeah. that, you know, it feels like if you had a finite term where, okay, you go to this treatment for six months or whatever, right. and then you can get out and, and, and try to live a normal life, I could kind of live with that. Mm -hmm. um, but the indefinite nature just feels like this is this is prison by another name. Mm -hmm. I think it absolutely is prison by another name. Yeah, I mean, I think that the indefinite nature, like there maybe isn't a good intention there, right? Which is that different people need different things and take different amounts of time to progress through treatment. I wouldn't call this, I mean, you know, again, I'm saying I really want to drive home for people listening. I, I'm using air quotes when I say treatment because this is really not uh, transformative in the ways that we want it to be. But um, yeah, I think that even if there was a time limit, though, I mean, it's it's not something that people are consenting to. People can't heal without their own consent. If people don't want to look into the instances that led them to cause harm in the first place, if they're not ready to revisit the traumas in their own life, this isn't going to do anything for them. Um, and I think that it's really understandable that we we all, I think, have this desire to live in a world without harm and violence. I think most of us crave that. And I think that it's really comforting to think that there are a handful of people who have the unique pathology to cause harm. And if we just put them through treatment and we fix them and make them like, quote unquote, the rest of us, then we won't have harm anymore. And that's just not true. I think that that comes from a place of fear where people want to say that we can control violence because we can isolate it to a limited group of people. When the reality is that all of us have the ability to cause harm. There's not a unique pathology that makes that possible. Everyone has the physical ability or mental ability to cause harm and and people have lots of different life circumstances that inform whether or not they ultimately choose to do that and that's a scary thing to make peace with to accept that possibility for violence and harm within ourselves but we can think about all of the factors that help us make decisions uh, to care for and nurture and, and be kind to other people and think about how we can give more people access to those factors as opposed to giving a handful of people access to punishment
Well, I want to thank you for educating me because I was not aware of this. Um, and well, I've been doing you. this for a long time. <laughs> That's um, a pleasure to meet you. Yes. Um, Emma Williams, uh, who does uh, a lot of work. Um, and, and sorry, what what is the um, name of the organization that, that is your main employer? Um, my main employer actually doesn't work on this issue at all. Um, I work for a legal aid clinic full time, but um, the work that the group that I've done this work with um, is called Inside Illinois Civil Commitment. We're a group of volunteers who have various research training. People can find our work at Inside Civcom, B-I-V-C-O-M, Illinois, or I-L, InsideCivcomIL.com. We've been talking with Emma Williams. We've been talking about civil commitment. Um, this has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justice for George Powell, all one word, dot com.